0: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
1: Today my guest on Off the Shelf is John Etherton, the president of Etherton & Associates. Uh, John, uh, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks, Roger. It's always a pleasure to
1: I'm looking forward to this discussion. It's that time of year again. We got the uh, various different policy issues, topics to cover over the course of the show. Uh, I think, you know, before the show, we were talking like we could do a three-hour, four-hour show here, right? Easily. So we're going to be squeezing four hours into four 10-minute segments here. So um, first of all, let's kick it off by, you know, I want to get your insights with regard to the FY20 NDAA as it's moving through, you know, the legislative process.
2: Sure. Uh, well, we're done. Uh, basically, the president signed the bill in December. So the provisions are enacted. There's a very robust, as has been the case for the last four or five years, a very robust Title Eight, which is where most of the acquisition provisions are, are located. Um, the bill is huge. Uh, if anybody's actually taken a look at it, I went up to the documents room to get a copy of the printed version and my knees literally buckled a little bit when I picked it up. It's the biggest one I've ever seen because the bill also incorporates the Intelligence Authorization Act provisions and a number of other things that were picked up on the House or Senate floor. Um, But on the acquisition side, uh, you've got a number of issues that are addressed. Uh, In some cases, there are older issues that we have a continuing conversation around, like supply chain risk. There are some new things like the software acquisition uh, a pathway language which came out of a Defense Innovation Board study last spring that both the House and Senate people have embraced as a way of more rapid acquisition, streamlined acquisition model, um, and there are a number of other things in the bill. So it's a there's a pretty rich uh, portfolio of things, even though at the beginning of the process, the staff at, on both committees had told us they weren't going to do very much last year, and I guess that kind of went by the board, so...
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think we've had the. I mean, before we get into some uh, that's a, you know, an overview, and before we get into some more specifics on like what 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 supply chain risk provisions are in there and what do they mean for folks, I I'm just um, curious because we've done the show before and you've mentioned like we're on the cycle of procurement reform, and you you know and lots of folks are saying we we might be taking a breather here while people try to implement what what's actually been passed over the last few years so you, so that didn't really, it didn't, amp really it.
2: it didn't really pan out i mean i think the one thing though that i would say about the provisions in la, in this last bill is that you didn't see quite as many of the very bold things that you may have seen in 2016 2017 like uh, abolishing the undersecretary of defense for acquisition yeah the, re-or- the, yeah, the reorganization that. and the devolution of the uh, milestone decision authority back to the services. Uh, so I think there are, there were probably less of those bold strokes and a lot of sort of digging in on some of the issues, with the exception of as I mentioned, the software acquisition pathway and some of the um, there was a there's language in there also on valuation of uh, intellectual property, which was an outcome of the Section Eight Thirteen panel that DoD had um, that, that sort of breaks some new ground, but nothing quite as dramatic as what we've seen in the past.
1: All right. Um and that I just find that I mean so so what do you think is going to happen moving forward? Are are we really going to take a break? It is an election year.
2: Um again, the staffs have said yes, sort of, but yet we have heard a number of different issues that people have have raised. Um, I still re- believe that as we get to the new model of DOD acquisition which really puts a great emphasis on speed for relevance, um, that the implications of that, both in terms of the major capabilities, acquisition under the DOD 5000 instruction and some of the other things that folks are trying to do, are really going to drive you into having to then reassess how we do the money, uh, how that impacts other kinds of things that DOD does that are not central in the acquisition process, but where the acquisition process has to interface um i think we're going to continue to to, to really have to Yeah so there's ripple effects out right, right on they the have system. to be addressed right. legislatively exactly.
1: yeah interesting that would be uh important to watch so turning back to the to uh the FY20 NDAA and um things that you know DOD's going to have to implement um just supply chain risk what you know that's one everybody's focusing on these days right and right. you hear it uh, daily In terms of, um, you know, whether it's CMMC or um, in terms of cyber, but also Section 889, you know, the Huawei issue. Um, So what did they include this year? Well,
2: I think the thing to keep in mind, historically, when we've talked about supply chain risk, and we never used those terms, but it was sort of access to materials and capabilities and that sort of thing. It was always in terms of making sure that we had a robust domestic source or, a robust domestic plus NATO-allied source of various capabilities and things. And that's still a concern. There's still language in this bill that addresses concern about access to things like um, um, rare earth magnets and other kinds of things like that, that that have been a big concern. Tungsten and tantalum was one of the new things that was added this year to the to That's the a list. new word for me, yes. a new mineral, huh? A new that mineral, yes, the tantalum alloys and that – sort of that's more the traditional what I consider the more traditional supply chain risk issue but as you know over the last uh, couple of years really uh now we have other concerns about supply chain and there are things like what about malware uh what about the ability of a adversary to, to take information and and gather it put backdoors and kind of things as the information flows through these various networks that's becoming more and more of a concern uh, that And a lot of that is reflected in the bill this year. For example, there's new language this year about the inability to use uh, uh, basically, if you read the language, Chinese unmanned aerial systems in certain classes uh, for U.S. operations and to acquire those. And then that's really sort of a new thing that people have been concerned about. And so now we're, we have some prohibitions, uh, some exceptions to those prohibitions. But there was essentially language in both bills addressing that. Came out of uh, concerns, I believe, from the White House, relatively late, and those were addressed in the bill. Now the question is, if you take those UASs off the table in terms of what you can buy for the U.S. military, what do you replace it with? And that's going to be a challenge, I think, for the department to nurture a capability that would be an effective replacement for uh, for the for the drones or the UASs coming from China or other places that we're
1: concerned. So that's another area where the Chinese. That sort of dominate the market. Right. Right. So
2: And then the question is how do you create what are the tools that, that would give you a reasonable way to create that? But the prohibition is in there and uh, there also is sort of a, a more I, I would consider it a systemic or systematic approach to this whole issue of vulnerability from from cyber and other areas and some direction to the department to sort of pull it all together and, and rather than dealing with these things piecemeal to give the the put together a plan or some kind of a structure so that for oversight purposes, Congress can really understand what those things are and how they're working together. There's language in there. And I think it's, it's very good language because it really provides for a lot of interaction and dialogue with industry uh, and yet uh, would produce something in a reasonable time frame that I think would be something effective for people to, to use as a benchmark.
1: So it's really taking a more, I don't know, you know enterprise-wide view of it rather than you get into the stovepipes and sort of parochial approaches. Looking at program
2: by program or coming up with something that specifically deals with a network or, you know, some kind of a pathway where there might be a problem as to how are we going to address this in a more holistic way. And, and And again, I think the language that the committees ended up with is pretty reasonable. And again, it will get us some information that we need and give them some information that they need for oversight purposes. And do it in a reasonable time frame. It uh, gives the department enough time. But they build in a you know direction to do some collaboration with industry and, and putting all this together. And so it's not – the concern you always have with language like that is it becomes very prescriptive. It says do it in a certain way and, and the attempt, uh, basically tries to short-circuit a process that you really need to have to make something like this work effectively.
1: Right. So the process – in this case, the process is important, right? Exactly. It's how you get – input from industry. Is that also sort of – I'm just curious. When you describe that, I'm, I'm also thinking about, like, for example, like cloud capability, which it seems to me, you know, whether it's JEDI or whatever, thinking about it across the department as opposed to – you know, they, there's a little bit of everything right in the department right. in terms of that, you know, cloud contracting. But the idea of creating a capability that, that's available across the department, right. is that – it kind of mirrors a little bit. A or little not? bit,
2: right? It, again, it's. Or am I light. reaching here? You're reaching a little bit, but oh, I think. I, but I think it's. <laughs> I think it's. It's consistent. I think what you're seeing people try to do is is now that we've had a few years of concern about this, there have been a number of specific provisions on source code sharing, Huawei um, requirements to address vulnerabilities in weapons programs. Um, you have all of those things that have been legislated piecemeal. And I think what you have now is, is, an, is an idea, let's pull all this together and see how these things all fit together and, and what do we as Congress need to be understanding in order to properly uh, conduct our oversight. So yeah. I again – but I, I'm impressed with the deliberateness of the language, the, the way that it sort of builds in a reasonable process to get to the answer without trying to come up with the answer in legislation and say this is what we're going to try to impose – yeah, it's uh, not prescriptive. Exactly. It's, exactly.
1: An you know, emphasized deliberative approach. Right. 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 So, well, John, we're already up on the break. Um, so, when we come back, we'll talk some more about uh, the NDA. Pick out some of the other interesting provisions uh, from the FY20 NDAA, and we'll also get into some. You know, start talking about some of the other issues going on on the procurement on the especially on the DoD side. My guest today is John Etherton. He's pre- president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John Atherton, president of Atherton Associates, and we're talking um, in this segment. We're going to continue our discussion of the FY20 NDAA and a couple other, I think, important and interesting provisions uh, or areas of focus in the bill I mean, in the, in the law at that point. Um, and so, John, data rights. And that's something I know, like, you know, I, being a government contracts lawyer, you're like, you just, your eyes get, bit like, data rights. How do you, you know, how do you figure out how to, the allocation of rights and uh, what it all means and, um, and how do you promote access to technology or even development of technology in a balanced manner that incentivizes private sector while at the same time, you know, you know, providing the department or the government, you know, the rights it needs to be able to, you know, continue to support it. I mean, that's 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 the big, that's fundamental to me, the challenge, right? right? right. So, so what did they do this year?
2: Well, I think just to put this briefly in context, as you say, this has been an issue that people have been arguing about since we've had government procurement um, because the government tends to have the most leverage at the front end of a program on data rights, yet they have the least insight into what their actual requirements are going to be. So the practice has been, at least I hear this anecdotally, that the uh, program folks will ask for government purpose rights for everything, which would give the government the ability to hand over data rights to a company's competitor, say, just for that procurement, theoretically, but concern about control of the technology and that sort of thing is really paramount, and it really leads to a lot of disagreement. This year they put language in the bill which would create a pilot program which would look at different valuation models, similar to things that they're doing in the in the commercial industry, so that we have alternatives to those conversations. So the government can say, look, we'll pay you for this funding stream that you may we may put at risk by you giving us information at certain points for better control that the government might have over sustainment, the ability to do more competition, that sort of thing. We'll use these private sector valuation models to make a a determination of what the value of that is and then work that into the price. So they have a pilot program now to do that. This was one of the – probably the primary recommendations of the Section 813 government industry panel looking at IP as far as a legislative provision. It was in both bills, something DOD thought was very worthy. So that, I think, is something that – we'll see how that works, uh, but at least it's an alternative pathway. So.
1: Right. So, you know, it's just how, how that <laughs> – the devil's in the details of that, right? Of we forgot how the, implement, you know, the implementation will work out. And is, is there, at the end of the day, with this authority, is there a, a report out that DOD yes. is going to have to do? Yeah, there'll to be report a report back.
2: But the pilot basically is open ended. It doesn't really, it's not limited to the number of programs, and it's really not limited in time. So I think, you know, this is basically more of a go out and do this, select some programs, as opposed to let's try this on five, see if it works, and then in three years we'll decide if we want to continue it. This is more of a forcing, go out and do this on a few things, let us know how it's working. Uh, but it's not really a terribly limited pilot either in time or the number of programs that they can
1: look at. Interesting. So, you know, another area um, that I wanted to ask you about is software acquisition. Mm-hmm. And what, what's, what, what are we looking at there?
2: Well, the whole – we're seeing – As everybody, I think, on the listeners know that more and more capability in systems are really software-based. I mean, the hardware obviously is important, but so much of the capability now resides in the software. And so what we're seeing in acquisition, from my perspective, is a much more focus on how do we do that better and faster. Um, And this new pathway for software acquisition, which uh, was a result of the Defense Innovation Board Software Acquisition Practices Study, Um, that came out last spring in which there was a legislative proposal put out with that. Uh, Both the House and Senate took a version of that, and we have something now which is an additional tool to try to promote and move DOD along with very rapid acquisition of software capabilities with very rapid payoff uh, as opposed to sort of the long-term development programs that we have now. Um, I think it's still kind of a shell. It's a little bit of a work in progress. Uh, DOD has issued an interim uh, d- instruction, which captures some of it, but not all of it, as one of the staff on the Hill reminded me yesterday. Um, and that that is working. And the, in, one of the interesting things about this is the, the, the Defense Innovation Board study recommended creating software color of money, basically, so that you wouldn't have to differentiate between operations and maintenance and R&D with the different things you can do with that and how long the money is available for They actually wanted to have software color of money, which would be freed up from that, which would make for less concern about the various activities that you would use to fund there. Um, And in fact, DOD in the FY21 president's budget, which we just got a few weeks ago, has recommended creating or funding programs through the software color of money, even though there was not an explicit authorization to do that in in the language in the FY20 authorization bill. So there's a real desire to sort of rethink the whole area of software acquisition to really line it up with a lot of things that are going on in the commercial marketplace uh, so that folks can move things along very quickly. And I think we will see, as a result of this language, number one, I think it's going to be a work in progress. We may see some additional tweaking to it this year and and the next several years, which gives industry an opportunity to come in and give their views. But I also think um, um, what we're going to see is a new – DOD directive as part of this 5,000 rewrite, which will be a little more definitive statement of what this new authority is uh, very soon uh, coming out of the department. So does
1: the authority, John, does it, I mean, does it, is it, I get, I'm, trying, I'm looking for the word flexible, Is it? does it allow for evolution, as you mentioned, trying to take advantage of what the commercial market is doing? The commercial market comes up with new ways to do things all the time. Is this something that the language and its implementation will accommodate new approaches, or are you going to have to go back and say, well, we have to tweak the statute?
2: I I think it's actually both and, okay? Okay. I think on the one hand it provides for more flexibility and more um, control on the ground by the people that are actually doing it, but it does that by getting this whole effort out from underneath things, like the J-SIDS process that you know you deal with requirements and the approval. There are some other things that were incorporated in this which essentially would cut out some of the, over, the, I wouldn't say oversight, but some of the specific requirements on acquisition that normally apply to programs which bring in other communities of people to then look over, second guess, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, the idea here is on the one hand you want to provide flexibility and on the other hand you want to provide relief from different aspects of the process that might otherwise apply. Um, and I think it's it'll be those two elements, I think. And I think the color of money conversation is really about giving the enough authority and flexibility in the use of the funds that, again, these other communities aren't necessarily going to be involved on a day-to-day basis as they would be otherwise in these programs.
1: It's, it seems to me, and I your view on the color of money issue, like creating this software color of money... I think that would be just having had to deal with fiscal law issues when I was in government and the different colors of money and different things you could do with the money and the per- that that would be a, a quite an empowering it's like if it would could drive efficiencies in terms of you know there's lots of infrastructure at least it were a GSA to address right. the type of money you have right and if you break those things down you you know you can you have more flexibility to actually accomplish what you need to accomplish. Does that make sense? No, it
2: makes a lot of sense. I think what we're going to see, though, on this is going to be a bit of an arms race where there's going to be a real push to try to figure out what this is and to create the flexibility. And I think on the other side, and I'm looking at, I'll be interested to see what the Senate House Appropriations Committee views of this are, um, to try to limit this, if they do approve it at all, to very specific kinds of activities so it doesn't become the, you know, the thing that everybody wants their own now color You're going to have all their own color. Yeah, you'll have, yeah yes.
1: you'll have the colors of the rainbow and that, beyond, that's right? right? That's right, that's <laughs> right. So, yeah. um, but and the other thing I wanted to quick, ask, quickly ask you about, because we're getting close to the end of the segment, um, is just do you see you know, this this approach expanding to civilian agencies at some point? Is that something that theoretically could be in, in the f- future legislation? Or?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think the challenge, though, I think DOD has a real – Case to make that they sort of has already made for them on the urgency of a lot of these yes. things, uh, given the the operational tempo and some of the challenges that we face around the world. If this, you know, the civilian agencies, I mean, now we're dealing with the potential outcome of the coronavirus yep. concerns yep. and other things that may be an impetus or DHS, DHS, yeah. and the yeah. Homeland Security. There may be a number of other in, uh, agencies that can claim those same kinds of urgent. Requirements that are connected with software, uh, maybe. I mean, I, DoD is usually the first to do some of these things, and then yeah. gradually they get the best practices get uh, applied or offered to the civilian agencies. That we'll see. I think in the next year, sort of what what happens with this. But I also think we're still in the process of defining it.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, I got to define it and use it, and then see if it, if it has that applicability other places. As well. And also see if it works first. Right. right? right. So, uh, OK, John, when we come back in the next segment, let's talk about provisions from the past or that are current. And that's like Section 889, the, the prohibition on the sale of the government of Huawei and other Chinese uh, companies, technologies, and also the prohibition on use. And we'll kick this seg- segment off with that and then look at some other policy challenges and and interesting issues across the department. My guest today is John Etherton. He is president of Etherton & Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John Etherton, president of Etherton & Associates. And we're talking all things primarily DOD acquisition policy related and um, we spent the first two segments talking about the fy 20 NDAA, and now we're going to go back in the time machine a little bit, or or and it, also the current day, actually, with the implementation of Section 889, which is the prohibition on um, the government's acquisition of technology from Huawei and some and other Chinese companies that are specifically identified, as well as what's coming in August of this year is – the implementation of the part of the rule that prohibits the government from contracting with companies that use those technologies, which is a big, interesting uh, challenge for the government and I think for industry as well to figure out how how that's going to work. So, and, and, John, just where are we with it? We just a little bit about why it was done and I think originally – and where, what you've seen, they have just had some public meetings. DOD just had a public meeting about it. Um, I mean, where are we in the, in the process?
2: Well, I think what you saw with Section 889, and there are, there are some other sections, which were also included in the FY19 uh, Defense Authorization Bill, which basically were you know people's realization how vulnerable, not only the supply chain for DOD, but more broadly... Uh, the networks might be because of the uh, widespread use of Huawei technology and technology from other companies in China. And I think the language that you saw enacted that year as part of the NDAA, whether it was 889 or 1655 or some of the other ones on source code, were were a reaction to that. And I think for the, the committee, and I've talked to the staffs about this, I think their view was, for example, on 889, that they gave a lot of discretion they didn't know the answers to you know, what are the, what are some of these terms? How broadly should this be applied, or whatever? Um, so they left a lot of discretion to the regulatory process for implementation. So you you basically on 889, for example, have two parts. One would be the uh, sort of subparagraph A1A uh, in that language, which basically would pro- prohibit people from buying, you know, or selling to the government any of these uh, tech company products or things that are associated with them, I think which is a much easier thing to define and figure out. And then the second part of it, which is the thing we're struggling with right now, is A1B, which is, you know, you're not allowed to have any of your services or products or whatever that use any of these technologies however whatever that means. And I think that's where people are struggling. The, the, that second part goes into effect under the law in August. Um, and we're struggling right now, I think, to figure out exactly what some of those words uh, will mean. Um, and I will also just parenthetically note that there were some issues in the implementation of, of the A, subparagraph so paragraph A language, which basically uh, are left to be settled, I think, in this new implementation for B. So we we have those sort of issues that are out there. And for everybody needs to keep in mind that this is a government-wide uh requirement or prohibition. It's not just DOD. So the the main focus on this one is going to be coming out of the Office of Management and Budget. And obviously, you have a lot of these terms, like use. What does that mean when you say you use these technologies? How how far do you spread that out in terms of your networks or your internet services or whatever it is that that might be available? The things that you use to sort of work connections within your supply chain, uh, the information that might flow out I mean, how much of that can you make people responsible for not using or even defining? Uh, those are all things that I think are very much on people's minds. I don't think that people have fully understood what the impacts of this could be nor what some of the alternatives are in the way you define those terms yet, uh, and we're, we're sort of in the middle of that. But this August timeframe is coming up, and I I personally am th- hopeful that there will be more of a collaborative uh, a process around what the possible language could look like in a rule. Uh, and and that, that I think that would help at least put our arms around the different issues that we're going to need to to decide. And if there's going to be something where there's not enough time, uh, would, would at least give people the ability to make a case for more time if that's really going to be something that's reasonable. So it, I think we're in the middle of that right now, and I think people are just now starting to understand what some of the challenges could be um, I would also note that I think in some of the larger companies, uh, it's going to it's going to take a while. I think for some of this to really work its way up, because I think my sense is that in many cases the supply chain piece of it is managed in one spot, the contracting side is managed in another spot, and it isn't clear to me necessarily that all that's come together yet. But I think people are starting to look at this and and, and express some concerns.
1: Yeah, well, aren't you know, and use is use just wherever using it, it does it doesn't even. It's not limited to use in performance of the contract. It really, right. it, it's open ended, which I think is, to your point, one of the big challenges around it. But you know, John, it seems to me you know, you make a great point about you know co- consensus building and working together in a certain sense, government industry to figure out how this how to implement it, what the language should look like. It seems to me we're starting to run up against the clock here. There's no proposed rule out yet to for people to take a look at and provide some sort of feedback there's been it's hard to give feedback on how it could be implemented if you don't have a sense of what it the government's thinking about in right. terms of implementation it's one thing to be asking people how hard is it but right. right but if you don't have anything to show people to say well can you live with this what are the problems with it um it it's it's going to get to the point soon here where where they are going to come up against the clock, right?
2: Well, now I've been so personally, after hearing about the public meeting a few days ago that DOD had, and I know there have been other meetings that GSA has also hosted in the fall, I've been foot-stomping or promoting, trying to promote the idea from my own thinking is that what DOD needs and what the OMB needs is to follow a process that they've largely been following now for the last – Four or five months on working through the intellectual property statutory implementation, which is to honor the the rulemaking process, you know, and the way that that's structured. But instead of publishing a proposed rule and then having everybody react to that, basically put out an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, put out the draft of the rule, yes, and then have a public meeting around the words, and, and you know, invite everybody in and say, look, this isn't just a hand waving exercise. We expect people to come to the table. And to react to these words and give us your thoughts and if you've got an alternative, you know, give us a line in, line out because that's been a real feature of the intellectual property conversations on these rules is that, you know, we've been having really substantive discussions, sometimes excruciatingly in the weeds detailed uh, around those kind of things. But I think that's the way forward on this to at least identify in those discussions where we think the real issues are where there may be a net need for more time or more information, or maybe not. Maybe there is a way to come to, to terms with the wording in a way that we could be ready by August. But I don't think I think you have a hard time making a case that that you know that there's this big issue unless you go through that process. And I really commend this administration because I think they have really in, in a number of places, whether it's the the CMMC issue with the cyber uh, maturity model uh, and and some of the other and the IP rules. They have really had a very good policy of good, constructive, appropriate collaboration with industry, uh, to sort of get everybody at the table and have them really work through some of this stuff in a public way, where every everyone who feels that they're a stakeholder can be there and participate.
1: Yeah, it seems to me, a, um, a advanced notice of public rulemaking and throwing and putting something out there is, you know, is is a collaborative way to get some better ideas rather than you have already put. A, Once you put out a proposed rule, you've already put a stake in the ground, right? And you've, and it's harder to change in a certain sense and find new directions um, because then you're you're either viewed as capitulating in a certain sense, or you have to so radically change direction that it takes even longer to do, right? But if you put ideas out there and thoughts and a a proposed approach, and not you know before you start actually you know doing formal official rulemaking in a certain sense. I think you will get you know um, positive um, engagement from industry in terms of looking at it and saying, okay, well, did you think you know here's some other ideas or or here's some things that aren't clear in the rule or you know have you thought of this kind of stuff?
2: I agree, and I, having I've been to all of the intellectual property meetings uh, that they've had so far, and what I've really seen is exactly what you describe. It's less formal. Uh, people come to the table with words. Um, I I was sort of impressed at the last meeting that I attended that um, industry signaled sort of this is what's really important, and these things are c- kind of thoughts we have and concerns, but they're not quite that important and and it's much less adversarial. People sort of right. get get all the emotion out of their system that they're used to with the with the normal rulemaking process, and it really does become oh, I understand now why you're why you did it that way and I understand or why you're proposing this what your real concern is you actually have a discussion. Which is very, very difficult to
1: uh, use once you get a proposed well, rule, it's harder. It's, it's just very much rigid harder.
2: it's a very rigid, yep. very rigid process. And my feeling is if you have it as a public meeting where everybody on the planet who you know wants to fill up a stadium and talk about this stuff has an opportunity to be there and participate, then no one can say that it was some behind closed doors kind of process. it's It's very transparent, very open. and and you can honor the the requirements of the rulemaking. Process as they currently, without having to amend them or go yeah. through a big process of the politics we're not changing.
1: Yeah, John, we're up on the next break. Um, when we come back, let's talk about the adaptive acquisition sure. framework a little bit, and then finish up with some just final thoughts about where things are right now in the procurement okay. system. My guest today is John Etherton. He's president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is John Atherton. He's president of Atherton & Associates, and we've been talking uh, about specifically a lot of NDAA provisions. Uh, we talked section, implementation Section 889. In um, this segment, I wanted to lead off and just get your thoughts about the adaptive acquisition framework.
2: Sure. For people on the listeners who don't know what we're talking about, DOD has a very large instruction, basically acquisition uh, capabilities in the department. The 5002 is what they call it. Um, and we're now in the process of – DOD's embarked on a process of basically rewriting this to incorporate some of the rapid acquisition pathways into it, including the software one which we talked about in the earlier segment. And they're also reviewing the existing instructions to try to see where they can be cleaned up and simplified and take a take a document that's – couple hundred pages and shrink it down to something that's manageable so everybody can read it. Um, and they're in the middle of this process. They've actually in, issued in the last couple of months several of the new instructions. Some of these are are going to be a work in progress where they're going to actually be evolving, continuing to evolve. Um, but what they're trying to do is really speed things up and figuring out a way to integrate the rapid acquisition models, the, the greater use of other transaction agreements and middle tier of acquisition authorities and those sorts of things and get those things integrated into this process so that we can use them to get uh, capabilities in the hands of the warfighter more quickly. The last big one, which I think is going to be really interesting to look at, is the uh, the major capability acquisition, which is the old uh, major defense acquisition program, which was the central piece of this, which I understand from sources that we're going to see that in the next uh, three to four weeks. Uh, which will be the final piece of their initial rewrite, and then we're going to—they're going to turn to the services and the defense business systems instructions that are part of this uh, structure and do a more thorough rewrite of those. So, uh, very big changes here that that are foot underway, and, and I think one of the things that is the challenge uh, that they're going to have is the transition from the rapid pathways. Sure. If they decide something really works great. to to moving that into the major capabilities acquisition without paying back all the time to sort of get integrated into that process, I think that's going to be a major challenge. Um, And everybody recognizes that. Uh, And so far, the only thing that I've seen in the documents about who's responsible is that it's going to be the program manager's responsibility. I'm not sure personally that the program manager has enough authority to take care of all of those issues in a way where they can be held personally responsible for the successful transition of that program. But again, I don't think anybody has any illusions about the, the difficulties. And But I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges that we're going to have, because Congress has put into statute requirements on each of the milestones for the major defense acquisition programs that are very paperwork, analysis Intensive. driven, yeah. Yeah. that involve lots of people being able to intervene and require things who really don't necessarily have to be accountable for the overall process. So. Um, those things are still there. So unless you get Congress to repeal some of that, uh, when you sort of hook up with the process at milestone A or at milestone B or even milestone C, what are the documentation requirements that you did not have to do if you started out as an OTA? You weren't even a FAR-based acquisition or even in the low-rate production that will get you to the place where you're going to be ready to do that without having to give up a lot of time to sort of Make up all of the of the things and get get through all those hurdles. That's going to be the the issue, and I think the other issue is going to be the interface of these new processes with the uh, programming and budgeting process, the PPBS process in DoD, where there are certain places where you hook onto that, and if you miss that time, you basically wait another year or two years before you're going to be eligible to be folded into the the uh, the. The program and the budget uh, going forward in the future years uh, so there's some elements there that also have to be coordinated and they're not going to change that from what I can tell they're simply trying to, to change these other elements yeah
1: you well know, that's kind of a that's gonna be a tough challenge right to try to it's really like, take advantage of streamlining things right and streamlining a process but at the same time at the back end of it you still have the same you know, level of documentation and analysis requirements. Like So it's almost like you speed up to get to a point where you can do all the reports you need to do. Is right, that fair right. to say? I, it could be. It a, could if
2: be, we right. don't do a better job, I think. I would. I hope, and I've advocated this with the department, that they really need to go to the committees, the armed services committees, and ask for relief from some of these things unless there's a real need, at least some of them, um, uh, because I think they're open for business. I think they're willing, yeah. given this a- adaptive acquisition framework, to say, you know, if, if you need to ma- us to make changes, if you need us to streamline this and change the law, I think they would be very open to that. But we're in March. They're going to mark up the authorization bill. The House is going to do it at the end of next month. The Senate's going to follow within a couple of weeks. I and mean, it's very late in this process to get any sort of consideration of a proposal. And I'm not aware the DOD's got anything yeah. up there. So it's going to be tricky.
1: Okay, well... And John, we have about a minute left, so I wanted to give you a chance whether you had some overarching you know thoughts on the procurement system where we are um, go ahead
2: well i I think that the this uh, folks that are currently in the department have wisely recognized and it was something even in the last administration, I think people were concluding that we have to change fundamentally the acquisition process in the department. We have a process that was essentially developed for a cold war Soviet Union sort of competition and that's just not gonna do it anymore. It's too slow, uh it's too cumbersome, it, it's too resistant to non traditional innovation to get in there. Uh and we have to go forward. And um my concern is we're really focusing a lot now on the speed for relevance piece. Yes. And we're gonna have to also look at cost and also look at program performance or at least cover that so that we don't end up dragging everything back uh when some of those other areas may be more problematic uh, and, and go back to the old process. We cannot afford to go back. We have to go forward. So I'm trying as much as I can to be as constructive and positive about some of these changes because I think they're all good. But we have it, it, because the system is so complicated and it involves so many other non-acquisition elements. It's going to be a challenge. We all have to really be focused, working hard.
1: Do you just real quick? Do you I mean risk? Do people have to understand, like the overseers, the the hill, whatever, that you're accepting more risk? Yes. that you've got to be willing to accept failures to get to the success. Well and, and I think one of the into capability you want
2: One of the, the the absolute values in this current new approach the DoD is following is that we're going to be able to fail fast without betting programs yeah. on outcomes. So whatever else happens you get that That's So you guys should
1: get risk mitigation. You get
2: risk mitigation, but the, if the risk that sort of cashes out in more expensive programs, you know maybe greater cost growth as you sort of learn things, there's going to have to be more tolerance, I think, for that. The Air Force has started talking about that, and I think we all have to, uh, that those kind of things, that, and in the past, I've seen that the system doesn't have a lot of tolerance for that, so we're going to have to, to really accept yeah. the higher risk if we're going to move more quickly, and it's going to cash out in some of these areas. Program performance may be something that is not a guaranteed thing as an outcome. You can't assume yeah, sure. everything's going to work, nor can you assume that your costs are going to hold. The costs may get... Uh, harder to predict. So we've got to build everybody's understanding of that as we go forward, if we're going to really sacrifice things to get speed.
1: Yeah. Well, John, thanks so much for being on the show. My guest today has been John Etherton. He's president of Etherton & Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network.
0: You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best everyday